Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable businesses and communities. This is Vernice Miller-Travis, Senior Advisor for Environmental Justice and Equitable Development at SCIO and host of our regular monthly series on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Today's guest is Ms. Katrina Lashley. Katrina is a program coordinator at the Smithsonian Anacostia Community Museum and currently leads the museum's Urban Waterways Initiative, which documents stakeholder efforts to engage with and improve urban waterways in their communities through a multitude of perspectives, including urban development, urban waterways, and diverse populations, community activism, and development, and river ecology. Previously, she served as an intern at the National Museum of American History's American Enterprise and a researcher at Arlington House, the Robert E. Lee Memorial. Katrina received her BA in English Literature and Italian Language at Rutgers University. And in 2011, she completed a master's in history in the public history track at American University with a focus on the British Caribbean. In addition to our public history work, Katrina was a teacher of English literature and language for 13 years. Katrina, you've had a very interesting path. So thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you so very much. Um, so first, let's start with what inspired you to become a historian and a historical researcher. So um, I always loved history as a child growing up. You know, I tended to have my head in a book. And I loved history classes and I could never understand why my friends or my other classmates would say, how are you reading that history book? How do you like history? It's so boring. I could never understand how they could not like history because how old did they think we actually got to where they were? I mean, history is the reason we're sitting, standing where we are today. So it was something that's always fascinated me. But it was a very personal interest. I didn't really quite understand what I could do um, as a historian beyond teaching, really. So I wasn't quite sure. I went to Rutgers, my undergrad. I still loved history, but I majored in English and Italian. And I ended up interning um, as part of a local school district, tutoring, so forth. Decided to actually teach. I was teaching English literature and Italian language. But once again, I, I still loved history, but wanted, what would I do with it? And so um, I burned out after five years of teaching. And a friend of mine was going um, attending American University for International Law. And I went to visit her. I really loved the feel of the city. We were sitting in a diner one day. She said, you know, what do you really, really want to do? And I kind of thought about it. And I said, well, I would really love to work in a museum. She said, well, you really should think about doing that. So that's what I did. I decided, okay, I want to work in a museum and I would find a way to do so. So I moved down to D.C. I enrolled. Um, I spoke to Kathy France, who was then at American University's history department running the public history program. I spoke to her about what exactly public history is. I did that. You can be a historian and not teaching in a high school or not, you know, teaching at university level. You can live in the outside world and work in museums and various nonprofits and community organizations. So that's how I actually, um, my path toward working at the Anacostia Museum, I decided, you know, I really wanted to kind of follow my passion. So 
fortunately, I, I ended up on the right path. And after I completed my master's, I was still kind of teaching part-time. And Kathy sent me this part-time position contract. She said, you know, put your hat in the ring. You never know what will happen. And that was for a project coordinator at the, for the Urban Waterways Project at the Anacostia Museum, working with Dr. Gail Lowe. So this is when I first met you through your work at the Smithsonian Anacostia Community Museum and the Urban Waterways Initiative. Can you give our, our audience a little history on the Anacostia Community Museum? Sure, of course. So the Anacostia Community Museum is one of the 20 um, units at the Smithsonian. It was really founded in 1967 as the Anacostia Neighborhood Museum. We are not on the mall. We are across the Anacostia River at 1901 Fort Blake. So uh, the museum just celebrated its 50th anniversary. And just want to give you a bit of information about the roots of the museum, because I think it really kind of lays a foundation for the work that we've done for the past 50 years, which really kind of influenced the Urban Waterways project. So in 67, then Secretary Dylan Ripley realized that vistaship at the Smithsonian seemed to be a little bit off in terms of who was coming through the Smithsonian doors. He realized that many African-American residents of the city had never really come down to the National Mall. And he was very curious as to why this was the case. So they did a bit more research and began to question the fact, you know, did D.C. residents feel comfortable coming to the Smithsonian? Did they feel welcome coming through the various Smithsonian doors? And so a decision was made to develop a, almost a satellite version of the Smithsonian in one of the neighborhoods in Washington, D.C., that would introduce residents to the various offerings of the Smithsonian, various units, and to encourage them to then come down to the mall to the various museums. And so um, John Kennard was named as the founding director of the Anacostia Neighborhood Museum. And I just want to give you a bit of information about his background, because I think it really helps to kind of explain what has driven the work of the museum for the past 50 years. So John Kennard was a DC native, he studied theology in South Carolina, and a year before his senior year, he spent some time volunteering for Operation Crossroads Africa, which is seen by many to be um, the forerunner of the Peace Corps. He returns, he finishes up his degree, and then he later goes on to lead development projects for the organization in Egypt, Zimbabwe, and Kenya. A couple of years pass, and in 64, he joins the staff of the Office of Economic Opportunity, which was the unit responsible for coordinating President Johnson's war on poverty. So about two years later, Mr. Kennard was responsible for leading efforts to fund anti-poverty organizations on the Maryland Eastern Shore. So he comes out of a background of um, faith leadership, of community activism, and he was very concerned that the new museum would be in service to those around it. He really truly believed in his other staff members as well that community museums or museums in general should be serving the community. And in order to do so, they had to have an intimate knowledge of who the people were. So who are the people living in this community? What is their history? What are their present realities? What are their concerns? How do they see themselves in terms of the larger world? And what are their aspirations for the future? And the staff is very adamant that when community residents walk through the front doors of the museum, that they would see themselves reflected, not only their history, both good and bad, but also their, present, their presence. So it's an understanding that the history of a community is very much at the root of its present, and that the history can be used as a tool of understanding. So what issues or challenges do we face today? How do we make steps or make plans to move forward in the future? And so... I think that Nord understood that history, the past needs to be celebrated, 
the present really had to be um, explored honestly and with sharing the authority of the very people who were experiencing living the present just with um, the residents of the Anacostia community. And I think that one of the earliest exhibitions that really reflected this willingness to share authority and this willingness to really kind of examine both the good and the bad of a community's experience was the exhibition which was entitled The Rat, Man's Invited Affliction. And so in the early days of the museum, there was a small, almost like a petting zoo. And some of the educators noticed that, you know, they had, you know, various animals and there was a, there was a pet snake and there are various mice and so forth. And they noticed that a lot of the pet mice seemed to be disappearing. And so they questioned the children, you know, what's going on? Where are the mice going? So, oh, we don't know. Maybe those bad boys that came in before did something. And they start to find um, skeletal remains, actually, in the um, snake cage. And they realized that um, the students were actually very, they were afraid of and also really kind of dissipated the mice. And, you know, they made the connection that um, many of the residents in the area were, kind of, were dealing with rat infestations. And, you know, they decided that this really was something that they wanted to explore. And if this was a major concern or issue that the community had been facing, that the museum's obligation was, okay, how do we tackle, how do we kind of look at this issue together? And so they went to the experts. They had, um, they interviewed the children, you know, what do you know about rats? What has been your experience with rats? And they took that information and they said, okay, we're going to do an exhibition about rats. And they went back to the children again, what do you want to see in the exhibition about rats? So tell us about the history of rats. Tell us what they eat. Tell people that they destroy things. Tell them how we should get rid of them. And so out of these conversations and this sharing of authority with the very people impacted by a very serious issue at the present, this exhibition basically explored the history of plagues and took a look at various attempts of the D.C. government authorities to kind of tackle the issue in the past. They could have explored um, the role of rats in scientific experiments. They took a look at possible solutions. And as part of the exhibition, they actually had a simulated backyard with live rats. So out of this exhibition, they also had programming very much led by the community. So they had um, a student-created skits, they had lectures, they had films. There are also um, neighborhood tours that were um, that involved city officials and also MPS officials at the time. So an example of the museum saying, okay, here is a pressing issue facing the people that we serve. We can't ignore it. It may be an unpleasant issue, but it is a reality. So if we're going to explore this issue, explore the history of this issue and explore possible solutions, we have to basically work hand in hand with very people that have an impact. And so that was the museum's first, I would say, exploration of the ecological problem which was facing the community at the time. So that was really kind of how the museum saw itself, really. So many people at the time weren't quite sure what to make of the Anacostia Neighborhood Museum. Was it a community center? Was it an educational center? Was it a community museum? And as far as the staff is concerned, it was kind of a combination of both. And so you had a youth advisory council who took part in decisions at the museum. Students they did research projects. They, were, um, they would spend time in the office of the educators. And so it was really this idea of a space that was very much a part or an extension of the larger community. And so as time passed, the museum kind of, kind of grew. In the 80s, they kind of moved into looking at the larger national African-American experience and also ways of preserving that experience. They had some exhibitions as The Real McCoy, taking a look at African-American innovation and invention. They also had an exhibition called Climbing Jacob's Ladder, which kind of looked at the rise of Black churches in East American cities. They had an exhibition called The Renaissance, Black Arts of the 1920s. So once again, moving from a local experience to a larger national African-American experience. 
moving into the 90s, the Black Mosaic was an exhibition and project that kind of explored the community, race, and ethnicity of the various immigrant groups in the Washington, D.C. area as well. So over time, the museum, I think, has kind of transformed from looking at a very kind of hyper-local issue, just taking a step back, looking at national issues, off the understanding that the local is very much a reflection of national and also international trends. And that really, to have a really um, authentic or valid exploration of any issues impacting communities, that you really had to be working closely with these communities. And so that is very much reflected in our today's mission. So the mission of the Anacostia Community Museum, as we stand, is to explore social issues impacting diverse communities of the D.C. metropolitan area and to promote mutual understanding and strengthen community bond. So we're, we're hoping to serve as a catalyst for critical thought, but also as a convening space for stakeholders and collaborators where they can feel welcome to express their ideas honestly and to kind of use their various expertise, their various skill sets to kind of make decisions about important issues facing the community. Once again, we provide the space, we provide the resources, and the, our various stakeholders, they work with us in terms of providing this. So Katrina, you you mentioned, and it is part of the important work that you do at the Anacostia Community Museum, the Urban Waterways Initiative, which started with a deep exploration of the Anacostia River. And I'm, I'm hoping that you can give a very condensed version of an extraordinary presentation you gave in January for the Equity Advisory Group for the District Department of Energy and the Environment you gave folks a history of the river. And I'm wondering if you could help our audience understand the significance of the Anacostia River to the development of Washington, D.C., but also the river serving as a dividing line between one part of the city and the other. Can you say, tell us and share a little bit about that? So um, the Anacostia River really was foundational to the settlement, not only in terms of the English colonies in the Americas, but also what would become the city of Washington, D.C., really. So when in the 17th century, when the English explorers arrived, they basically encountered groups of Native Americans who had well-established communities and networks who had been living along the Anacostia River for thousands of years. So along the Anacostia, you had the establishment of the Nahashtank Native American tribe. They were farmers, they were expert traders, and they used the waterways as basically the center of a thriving community. So with the arrival of the Europeans, you had really tensions between the two groups. So there's all, um, there was a kind of these, in the records, in the journals, you have these descriptions of the bounty of the Anacostia River. The Europeans kind of, you know, they explained over the clarity of the water, over the abundance of the birds and the bison and the otter, and the descriptions of, you know, you just dip your frying pan into the Anacostia and just pull up your dinner for that evening. So Henry Fleet, who was an early um, explorer and also a trader, kind of described it as this really beautiful, healthful, pleasant place. So, of course, you have all these benefits and amenities. Of course, people want to draw people out into settle. And so you had, as time passed in the colonial era, you had these infringing on Native American lands um, used for hunting and gathering. You had conflict, you had disease. And as time passed, Native Americans were pushed out and the English kind of settled along the Anacostia River. And so you had really more of an extracting of the resources from the river and also from its environs. You had the beaver trade flourish for a short time in the early 17th century, and then it died out because beavers were hunted almost to extinction. You had the extinction of the buffalo. You had um, laws had to be passed to control the hunting of deer. You also had the start of a timber trade. So you had, you know, the cutting down of trees that kind of kind of um, fueled this transatlantic trade that was going on. And so I would say the very things that made the Anacostia so valuable 
um, in the eyes of many of the people who've settled along it, was the very things that kind of led to its degradation. Mm. So as we move into mm. um, the into the 17th century, you have the start of tobacco plantations. So mm. tobacco became a status symbol in England, in England, known as the royal weed. And so the climate of the Chesapeake area was perfect for tobacco. And so you had a kind of a change in the way land was distributed. You had small land grants kind of gave way these larger grants that were suited for tobacco farming and often given to very well-connected people. And so you had the kind of isolation of power, territory, and access to the river itself in the hands of very few. And, you know, this idea of labor. So you had this um, use of indentured service, which eventually gave away to the use of enslaved Africans. And so Jack Winterston, in his book, Anacostia, the Death and Life in the American River, kind of points to the kind of creation of a two-tier um, system. You had a very powerful who kind of owned the land, owned in um, quotations and its resources, and those who actually worked and lived along it. I, people, some people would argue that this two-tiered system has continued to this very day. So you have tobacco farming. You had not only, um, I would say, the, the impacts on the people who are living along the river, but also the impacts on the land mm-hmm. river itself. So, you know, tobacco is a very intensive um, type of farming. So you plant and then you move on. So there's always this constant need for more and more land. You had the cutting down of trees, you had the um, deforestation, you had the silting in the river over time. And so as time passed, you have the Anacostia River, you have the establishment of Bladensburg Port, which is further up in PG County, which is basically the entryway into um, the commercial entryway into PG County. And you had you know, the settlement upriver, you have a thriving um, timber trade, you have shipbuilding, you have um, houses being built, you have various commercial establishments being built, but all this is placing pressure really on the river. You have the river becoming a dumping ground from the very early days. And the idea of what's happening upstream very much impacting those downstream. And one of those contributing factors is the establishment of the United States Navy and the Navy building shipport there in Southeast DC, which is the oldest continuously operating shipport in the United States. And all of its pollution went right into the Anacostia River, right? Yes, yes. So just so you understand, the Anacostia was seen as really the perfect harbor, right? It was 30 feet deep. It didn't freeze easily in the wintertime, and it was protected on both sides from the wind. So you had the establishment of the Navy Yard, which really became a, a center of industry, but also um, it's a really important source of employment for those living on the Anacostia um, for actually for many centuries. And so, yes, you had the production really of ships, you have shipbuilding, you have all the debris that comes from that, but also you have the establishment of the of the development, sorry, the production of weaponry. And all of that goes into that, and all that's being dumped into the river over time. So you have this ongoing kind of really um, pollution of the Anacostia from the Navy Yard over the course of several centuries. It's also important to point out that the Navy Yard was very much a source of employment and really was African-American community. African-Americans were a major I played a major role on the Anacostia River in terms of the yard itself, but also in movement along the river. They carried trade back and forth between the various ports along the river mm-hmm. and in the region. So employment at the Navy Yard kind of provided a source of income, a source of financial freedom that allowed people to kind of establish and support their growing communities, especially particularly um, African communities along the Anacostia both sides. And Katrina, when does the river become a geographic and geological point of demarcation as the city of Washington, D.C. begins to grow. So there's west of the river, which is most of the city, and then there's east of the river where the Anacostia Community Museum is, but where 
two thriving communities that are predominantly African-American have lived for over a century. When does that begin to become a point of demarcation? Yeah, so I would say from early on, there was a sense of beyond the Anacostia River as over there. Yes. So because of the dominance of tobacco farming, you had plantations and you had ownership in the hands of few. And so development along the river tended to be very agricultural. So you had from very early on the sense that you had the Anacostia River and then beyond was a very kind of agricultural kind of area settled by um, a variety of groups. So you had white communities, you had working class, middle class white communities, you had African-American communities that had settled over time, particularly after the end of the Civil War, you had um, refugees. So the question was, you know, with this influx of people, where are these people going to live? And so the Freedmen's um, Bureau purchased land east of the Anacostia River. For our listening audience, the Freedmen's Bureau was a bureau within the United States military that was charged and tasked with resettling the formerly enslaved Africans across the country. Yes. And so um, Barry Farm, historic Barry Farm, was purchased and divided into one acre um, plots or lots. And African-Americans, they purchased. Um, they also purchased the timber. And they basically built the community literally from the ground up, not only their houses, but also carved out streets and roads. And so over time, as time passed, you had the establishment of a very stable, middle, upper middle class African-American community, which kind of they shared space and sometimes intersected with other working class like communities. But I would say the Anacostia River was a dividing line that the demarcation became stronger as time moved on. So I would say up to the middle of the 20th century, Anacostia, or east of the river, was predominantly white communities. So with urban renewal in the 60s and 70s, that began to change. So as Southwest was developed, um, families lost their homes and they were pushed east of the Anacostia River and settled in the various communities. And you had a very much a very quick change in the character, really, of the communities east of the Anacostia River. Prior to that time, it was still a very kind of I would say a rural kind of feel to the place. People would spend their Sundays kind of enjoying picnics. They would go fishing. They would go um, shooting. We have stories of people um, learning to swim in the Anacostia River, people walking through the parks. That that really began to change with the influx of people. So this idea of public housing being built very quickly. And so it becomes, it moves from a predominantly, I would say, homeowning communities to renters and public housing. And then with the change also in terms of the integration of D.C. public schools, you had a shift really of employment. And I would say in the late 60s, early 70s, you saw really an outflux of many white families to surrounding suburban areas. And so by the early 1970s, East of the River communities, East of the Anacostia River really became predominantly African-American. And so that's where you see a really solidification of this idea that the Anacostia River really was a dividing line, not only in terms of class, but also in terms of race. And so you had this a situation where you had communities that were kind of, they were in many ways cut off from the services offered to other parts of the city. You had a concentration of poverty. And over time, east of the river became synonymous, I think, with this idea of crime, of poverty, of drugs, all the kind of stereotypical um, negative narratives associated with uh, many urban areas in the country, which really didn't reflect the reality on the ground. You had established, well-established middle upper middle class communities who uh, thrived for over a century, but you really had a concentration of those who were had least access to city services, who had the least access to economic opportunities, educational opportunities. And so as time passed, I would say that, yes, the narrative of the challenges facing these other river communities was true. It also kind of, I would say, became 
sometimes a convenient narrative that kind of brushed an entire portion of the city, the same kind of negative stereotype. So having a branch of the Smithsonian Museum there was an important thing. But there's also a relationship between the museum and that community, the Anacostia community and the Anacostia River. And so then you all determined to launch the Urban Waterways Initiative. And can you tell us a little bit about what the original concept was and what have been, and now you've expanded it nationally, what have been some of the lessons? And then finally, I want to want you to say a little bit about the Right to the City exhibit before we close. Okay. So the Urban Waterways Project basically came out of work that had an ongoing at the Anacostia Community Museum. So we mentioned um, the exhibition, The Rat, but also um, the museum had a gardening program, a gardening club, some of the youth, um, the research projects on um, environmental issues facing the Anacostia communities and the people living there. And in the early 1990s, the museum organized a conference looking at environmental issues um, east of the Anacostia, this idea of environmental justice just us. So what were the issues facing the Anacostia and what were some of the um, ways that the various residents could actually activate and advocate for themselves? So in early, let's say, 2009, Dr. Gaylow decided to really kind of go deeper, really mm-hmm. kind of dig into what is the Anacostia River? What has it meant for the city, for the communities living east of the river? What is this thing that serves as a divider over time? And how is the best way to kind of explore this relationship? So this project kind of operates from the understanding that communities and rivers, they share space and time. Um, They also share these ongoing histories that kind of ebb and flow. And it really is about relationships. And if you're talking about relationships, it really has to be worked from a variety of angles. So people hear this idea, oh, you're looking at urban waterways. They assume it's about the water, the birds, the trees. But we say, no, this is really about the people. And that if you're really going to tell a true story, a true history of a river and its people, you have to approach it, yes, from a scientific perspective. But what about the history? What about the culture? What about faith? What about issues of class, justice, issues of race, issues of health? And so our real goal really is to the idea of break down silos. So anyone who is interested in impacted by the Anacostia River, if you're working on the river, you should be talking to each other. And if you're basically sharing expertise and best practices. So major goal is to break down silos, have your scholars, have your scientists, have your local nonprofits, have your residents who are leading cleanups, have them sharing both physical and virtual space and exchanging their experiences and best practices. Our second major really goal was to document the experiences of um, the various stakeholders over time. We're looking at expanding the circle record. So often people who are in the midst of doing the work of advocating for their communities and for their natural resources, they're not really thinking about, okay, what is the history of what I'm doing? What is the, my method? What is my practice? Nothing these stories and narratives get lost over time. And so our goal really of this project is to kind of collect the story, the best practices, the experiences of those who have lived along the river and those who have advocated for the river over time. And the third goal really is to provide programming and opportunity for anyone who's interested in issues of reclamation and restoration. And so the focus really is on the Anacostia River. We understood that nothing exists in a vacuum, and we had to understand that the local is very much a reflection of national and international trends. And so we were interested in what other communities were facing in terms of building or rebuilding their relationships with their waterways. And so we looked at communities with very similar histories to the Anacostia, these are the Anacostia communities, communities that played foundational roles to the establishment of their larger metropolitan areas, communities who have kind of lived with legacies of pollution communities who have been deemed other, defined in a variety of ways, communities that traditionally have lack access to um, resources, 
but have always kind of worked from the ground up in terms of advocating for themselves and for their resources. So we look at communities in Pittsburgh, communities in Louisville, communities um, in Los Angeles, communities um, in various Gulf um, cities, Gulfport, Biloxi, look at communities on the island of Oahu, what does the urban water look like on an island, what does the urban water look like when it moves beyond stewardship to kinship. We also look at communities along the Lee River in London. So it's the idea of regeneration around the, the London Olympics. So the goal really is to have us join or serve as collaborators with these communities. This is not the Smithsonian coming in from the outside saying, we're the Smithsonian, we have all the answers. It's really acknowledging that these communities have been working for 25, 30 years. They're the ones that best know their rivers. They're the ones that best know the issues impacting them themselves and the health of their natural environs. And our goal really is to serve as basically um, a hub, really, as you know, we provide a network where you can speak for your experiences, where you can exchange your best practices, and where you can kind of broaden your network connections. This is really about, once again, working with communities to help tell the history of their waterways, the histories of the communities, and their present as lived, as they're tackling these issues, what has worked for them, what has not worked, what can they learn from other communities, and to kind of see a pattern, really, in terms of the development of cities around these urban waterways, how waterways have been the engines of change, the, um, helping to create wealth. But as time passed, as cities turn their backs on their waterways, they're also in many ways turning their backs on some of the communities that were living on these waterways. You know, as cities are rediscovering their waterways, as they're reclaiming them, what does that really mean for the very people who've been living there all along? So you have the idea that the histories, the futures, the fates really of waterways and their people are very much connected. What really are the fates of these communities for these individuals, these advocacy groups who, you know, were literally knee deep in rivers, pulling out tires and trolleys, who were breathing um, unhealthy air, who were feeling the effects of, you know, having dump sites or, you know, inhaling all these toxic fumes, who have dealt with the legacies of this idea of these polluted waterways impacting every single aspect of their lives. So once they have done all this work over time and they've kind of helped to kind of set the foundation and to kind of begin to turn the corner in terms of the health and prosperity of these rivers and these cities, what happens once these rivers have been rediscovered? What happens when these rivers are now deemed valuable and the communities are once again deemed valuable? Do they get to enjoy the fruits of their labor? I would say that what has been very striking as part of this project, that communities have been doing the work all along. Um, communities have really been pulling themselves together, working or say identifying their challenges, identifying those who could best help lead efforts. And they have an intimate understanding that everything impacting their life, all the issues that they're facing are all connected. They very much understand this idea of a systems approach that everyone has to be at the table in terms of addressing these issues. And what has been very striking is how they connect it very much to this idea of a larger justice movement. Yes, that the access to clean air, green spaces, you know, clean, healthy waterways should not be a luxury. It should be a right. And I'm also very struck with various ways that communities define themselves according to their waterways and how they define the issues pertaining to their waterways beyond, I would say, external um, narratives or, you know, external projections of what are the issues facing your community, your river. Communities are saying, no, we understand ourselves. We understand the um, challenges that we're facing. We understand the challenges that our waterways are facing. And we're ready. We, we are very much well equipped to lead these efforts. Another thing as well, too, is this repeating pattern of 
this fear of green displacement. Yes. And so yeah. once again, you know, we've done the work. We we're helping to clean up these these green spaces, these blue spaces. And now we're beginning to see the change, the impacts. Now it's deemed valuable. Wait a minute, do we get a chance to continue to sit at this table? And that's a really yeah. been an ongoing kind of theme and trend that's been a part of the work we've been doing. I know that's a huge conference going on in Los Angeles around the restoration of the LA River, but it is a palpable conversation here in the District of Columbia with all the renewed interest on the Anacostia River and the continued improvement of the quality of the water. People are wondering, is this what's happening before the next big push to displace many of the residents, the long-term residents of the East of the River communities? And that's a, it's a real conversation that we're not having enough, but people are feeling it in their souls. And just to kind of add, so so our goal in terms of this project really was to kind of engage people in these varied issues and these um, conversations through a variety of ways. So we had um, an exhibition, Reclaim the Edge, Urban Waterways and Civic Engagement. That was the first kind of major kind of engagement with the local communities around the Anacostia River, but also in other um, cities looking at London, Los Angeles, Louisville, Pittsburgh, but also this ongoing dialogue, as which is key. So we have a series of community forums where we invite community experts and leaders into conversation with community residents. We also have an ongoing urban waterways newsletter. We had a 2015 symposium where we invited our national network into a physical space for one day to introduce themselves and their communities and their waterways, but also hear the issues that we face and hear the issues that we've tackled and how we've tackled them. So as far as we're concerned, the museum, we are part of an ongoing dialogue where we provide opportunity for exhibitions through ongoing community forums through ongoing photographic exhibitions, newsletters, working to a website, all with the hope of continuing the conversation and making sure that a variety or multitude of voices and perspectives are always at the table. And Katrina, if you could just close out this interview and discussion with some description of the current exhibit at the museum and tell people how they can get to the exhibit and how long it's going to be going on. So our current major exhibition is called A Right to the City, curated by my colleagues, Dr. Samir Migueli, and is really taking a look at the history of neighborhood change in Washington, D.C., once again, highlighting the fact that neighborhood cities have been changing continuously throughout history. What has it looked like in Washington, D.C.? And what have been the reactions of communities to that change? How have they advocated for themselves in the face of that change? And it's up right now, up for the year 2020 at the Anacostia Community Museum, 1901 Fort Place Southeast. And it really, as we're taking a historical look at a very kind of contemporary issue, right? And kind of to kind of highlight over time what communities have been impacted by neighborhood change and how have they responded? And then what lessons can communities today take from that history? How that history is very much still a part of the fabric of the city and really kind of beg the question, you know, what does a right to the city look like? Who has a right to the city? And it's a question that communities and cities that are tackling not only nationally, but internationally, but really is this idea of taking a very ground level grassroots look at how have communities really kind of activated and advocated for themselves over time. And of course, it's very much connected to this idea of redevelopment on the Anacostia River. So once again, as the city looks east, right, this is a question that's been going on in the rapid change in D.C. over time. Now everyone's looking east. What are some lessons that we can pull from the history of neighborhood change in D.C. over time? Thank you so much, Katrina Lashley. We really appreciate you joining us and bringing us um, so much great work and information from the Smithsonian Anacostia Community Museum. Thank you all for listening, and we look forward to seeing you next time on Infinite Earth Radio. 
Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash infiniteearthradio and Twitter by following at infiniteearthradio.com.